Did the Birchers win after all? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Robert Welch, founder of the John Birch Society, was central to mid-20th century conservative and American politics. Conservatives thought they excised Welch and his brand of conspiratorial and extreme politics from their movement. But the revival of the American far right and the rise of Donald Trump suggests more of a through line. Perhaps the Birchers have more to do with how our politics developed and what the base for conservative politics looks like. Today, I talk with historian Edward Miller of Northeastern University, author of the new Chicago book, A Conspiratorial Life, Robert Welch, The John Birch Society, and the Revolution of American Conservatism. He argues that understanding Welch is critical for seeing what animated the right then and now. Trump represents the culmination of the Birch right long after the organization declined. Here's our conversation, which started with how Robert Welch helps to explain the contemporary world. Well, my major argument is that we live in the age of Robert Welch, whether we know who he is and uh, what he did or why he matters. And I argue in the book, my first point was that he's more important than we thought. Uh, Take the conspiracy theories that were inundated every day, the birther conspiracy that um, Obama was born elsewhere, uh, QAnon, uh, all the vaccinine, uh, the, the vaccination canards. Uh, uh, Welch's worldview revolved around conspiracy theories. He, he thought that a uh, secret band of globalists, um, as he called them, were running the world. He would ultimately come to the conclusion that it was the Illuminati that was running um, running the world. Um, he thought President Eisenhower was a communist working for the Kremlin. I mean, President Eisenhower was certainly no communist. I mean, we're talking about the man who, um, who planned D-Day and defeated Hitler. And um, My point is to say that, that Welch's world, world view, um, a world of nefarious globalists and uh, uh, cons- uh, conspiracy is seen everywhere in our politics today, and it's I think it's ratcheted up uh, during the past years with the uh, the pandemic and the election of twenty twenty. Uh, the other point I-, I wanted to make in the book was that Robert Welch was never really excommunicated; he never became a pariah ostracized or driven out of the conservative movement. Um, A myth grew, a myth that was born out of um, William Buckley's control of the conservative movement. Uh, William Buckley was a a proud chronicler of the conservative movement and wanted to, uh, he wanted to kind of control the the narrative. Um, And this excommunication canard, a prevarication grew over the years. And the truth is, uh, Welch never left. Uh, he changed his tactics, but he, but he hung around there, and his ideas were still there under the surface. Uh, my other, the other point I wanted to make was the, uh, the connection uh, about Welch and McCarthy. McCarthy went after the army, of course. 
Um, and it also led to the Army McCarthy hearings. And it was Welch who continued on in that fashion, going after the head of the Army, going after General Eisenhower. Uh, so I, the, the point was to make that link between uh, Welch, uh, McCarthy and Welch, which is a direct connection to the, globe, the, the Goldwater movement as um, many of Welch's supporters were actively involved um, in the Goldwater movement. So tell us the story behind uh, this book. Um, and I know you wrote a previous book on uh, right-wing uh, Dallas before the Kennedy assassination, so kind of how it uh, developed out of your previous interest. Well, I always thought that uh, Nut Country, um, uh, Dallas Wright, and the, uh, the birth of the the Southern strategy uh, that I did not fit Welch, uh, Welch in enough. Welch, of course, was from Belmont, Massachusetts, and I was doing a, um, a book about Dallas at the time, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to go beyond the the story of uh, I wanted to go beyond that time and place story and do a biography. Uh, I wanted to delve deeper into many of the ideas that I wrote about in the book on Dallas in the 1950s and 60s. I wanted to talk about uh, the apocalyptic rhetoric uh, that I found. I wanted to talk about the conspiracy theories that I, that I found were uh, ubiquitous in Dallas at the time, the over-the-top, wild-eyed rhetoric uh, that I found in Dallas, um, I found in, in Mr. Welch. Uh, so in a sense... The book was a more microscopic, uh, targeted uh, version of Nut Country uh, and, and a biography where I could showcase some of the, the concepts of Nut, Nut Country, but um, bring it to a per more personal level and focus on one individual. The John Birch Society was big in, in uh, Southern California and Dallas and um, Welch's native uh, Massachusetts, but um, Welch's ideas were everywhere in in Dallas, and he showed up. He actually showed up from time to time, speaking at uh, speaking at events, speaking at um, the public luncheon club in Dallas. Um, but as I said, I was writing a monograph about a time and place, and I couldn't delve into the details. I wanted to, but I eventually got that opportunity. Uh, it's also um, that there had never been a full-scale biography of Welch. Uh, historians have scoured the conservative movement, um, but they really have not addressed in a biographical form uh, an individual that I argue is central, paramount to the conservative movement um, in the 20th century into the 21st century. Um, so it was a great opportunity to fill in that gap. So how did a, uh, a failed uh, lieutenant governor primary candidate in Massachusetts become uh, so central to the American right? Well, that's a... That's a wonderful question, I think, and uh, I'm really happy you asked that. 
because I, I think there is a connection. Um, he, lot, he ran for, Welch ran for a lieutenant governor in 1950 in Massachusetts and lost. Um, he, did, he did fairly well. He, um, for a first-time contender, um, but I think in Massachusetts, we, we, in a way, we see the stirrings, uh, the seedlings, the, uh, the, the, early, um, the early part of the John Birch Society. Though he lost the race, he was instrumental in Massachusetts in establishing an organizational powerhouse in Massachusetts. He had Welch um, campaign committees throughout the state. Uh, virtually, I think there were 200 campaign committees throughout the state. He really did his organizational homework. He recruited some of the first folks who, uh, who became part of the John Birch Society uh, after, his, his, uh, after he lost the, the election. He was despondent. Uh, he, was, uh, he was frustrated, but he established, he quickly established this educational organization throughout Massachusetts, focusing on the ideas that he cared about most and really established the institutional underpinnings of the early John Birch Society. Also, I think he wanted to become more involved in politics. He caught the political bug. Uh, he liked the attraction of politics. Uh, it was something that almost became an obsession to him. Uh, he, he always wanted to run for politics. He was thinking about running against John F. Kennedy in 19, 1958. He was thinking about running for Congress um, from his district, District 5 in Massachusetts. So he was, he was captivated by politics. Um, he would eventually leave, after the lieutenant governor race, he would leave his candy organization, James Welch Candy Company, and he would go on to find, found the John Birch Society in 1958. But I think the Boston experience, uh, the electoral experience, certainly helped him uh, find, his, find his road. I think an important point is that he felt excluded from the process. This is something that Richard Hofstetter talks about. Um, he felt perhaps um, a bit of status envy, um, and that and that envy would help drive him to become a member, become the founder of the John Birch Society. Um, so I think the, the one of the early seedlings of that of that society was the his failure to be an active participant in uh, in Massachusetts politics. He was his eye was on the Senate. He always wanted to get involved in national politics. But he, I think he, he saw the uh, lieutenant governor's race as a stepping stone. It's an opportunity for him to get involved in politics and uh, uh, achieve his his dreams in politics after he had um, founded a successful candy company. So the Birch Society is normally considered um, sort of the extreme end of the foreign policy leg of uh, the American right. 
Uh, but uh, of course, you can also tell a story that he came out of the National Association of Manufacturers and he was a business executive. And so he fits the kind of economic conservatism leads uh, from the business backlash to the New Deal kind of story. Um, and then you also tell a story that um, he that the Birch Society was a very early form of kind of cultural conservatism. They were on abortion early and some things that we think of not coming to conservatism later. So uh, so how well is it how well categorized is it to put the Birch Society on sort of the foreign policy leg um, or is it kind of. Uh, another story of, I guess, fusion on the American right, that this was happening at the extremes before it happened. Oh, that's a wonderful question. Uh, the, another one of the central arguments of the book is that the John Birch Society uh, really never went away in the 1970s. And this is where we start to see his, his interest in a greater interest in social issues, cultural issues, libertarian issues. Um, and you, you see this drift away from um, a solely anti-communist organization. He actually, um, his, his conspiratorial worldview changes in um, the 60s, and he comes to the conclusion in a pamphlet called The Truth in Time that it wasn't the communists who were running the world, but uh, a group of insiders, um, globalists, if you will, in the modern day terms. Um, but he realizes that after the antipathy and the animus towards the society um, in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, the mid 1960s, that he could not grow the organization uh, the way he wanted to. And so uh, after that time, uh, he changed his tune. He changed his tactics. John Birch Society established these ad hoc committees that weren't necessarily um, weren't necessarily comprised of members of the John Birch Society. There were people from all over. Um, the leaders of these ad hoc committees were Birchers, but uh, you didn't necessarily have to be a member of the John Birch Society to become a member of these ad hoc committees. These ad hoc committees focused on social, cultural, libertarian issues. Um, they focused on abortion. They were very pro-life. Um, Welch established a committee called TRIM, uh, Tax Relief Immediately, which focused on uh, cutting tax rates, cutting regulations, um, and I argue this became central to the Reaganomics of the 1980s. Uh, he was also involved in many other social issues. He was a leader in the gun rights movement and augured many of the same ideas um, that the National Rifle Association um, advocates today, really decades before the Na National Rifle Association um, reached its apogee and um, became much more uh, radicalized as it is today. He was also against the ERA, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. And I would, I, I would argue in the book was as central as Phyllis Schlafly in stopping the Equal Rights Amendment, which nearly passed 
One uh, historical story of the strength of the American right says that it had to be created by business executives who kind of uh, hoodwinked uh, the masses to find a way to oppose the advance after the advance of liberalism after the New Deal. Um, and Welch is, is sometimes cited among business figures who were involved in, in that effort. But your story seems a, more aligned with Welch kind of channeling an existing American right wing. Where do you, where would you put it? Well, that, that's a good question because there was a definite grassroots element to his ideology um, that I think is not present in the existing scholarship. Um, first, number one, the campaigns that he was involved in consisted of everyday people who were coming to work for him. Um, they were working the phones. They would be the folks um, uh, holding the signs. Um, they were the they were the folks who gave um, a lot back to his campaigns. And number two, his employees in the um, the his candy companies or his or his brother's candy companies. These were grassroots folks who believed in the things that he believed in. He also received a significant amount of support through grassroots support through the books that he wrote um, in places in the Midwest, in in Chicago. Um, he wrote two books: um, the um, story of John John Birch and May God Forgive Us. And these these grassroots folks, I, I think, are building. And they're garnering support for the John Birch Society at that early stage. And these are the same folks who are uh, going into the bait shop, going into the, the gasoline station and, and reading his books. Um, uh, these are the same folks who follow his ideas that, are, that appear in daily newspapers in Massachusetts. So, yeah, the, the top-down... Um, thesis. This this is not just a top-down movement, despite the fact that you know, the eleven men who the eleven other men who formed the uh, foundation of the John Birch Society in, in Indianapolis, uh, near Indianapolis, at Margaret Dice's house, uh, where they met for the uh, the John Birch Society for the first time. Um, consisted of, of high-level executives. So um, I got uh, the, the same sense reading uh, your treatment of Welch and uh, racism that I often get in uh, reading uh, histories of the American right, um, where it sounds like uh, race wasn't kind of racism and support for segregation weren't kind of the driving forces um, behind uh, Welch, uh, but he was, of course, very tolerant and opportunistic about um, the, uh, the way that those, uh, that, that racism would help build um, uh, the, the American right um, and help join forces with Southern conservatives. That sounds a lot like how people talk about William F. Buckley or Phyllis Schlafly or Clarence Mannion or some of these other figures and their relationship to uh, racism. But there are certainly people who tell a story where the, the 
racism is much more central to the the rise of the American right in in this mm-hmm. period. So where does where does uh, Welch fit? Well, of course, racism exists around the 1950s and, and throughout longer than that, earlier than that. Um, backlash occurred. Uh, real backlash occurred following uh, 1965. Many sought law and order in the candidacy of uh, Richard Nixon and, and George Wallace in 1968. Um, and it's, well, I think you're, you're right. It wasn't his primary concern, but he also became more concerned with the civil rights movement as these, um, as these events occur. Um, now, to be sure, he was very active in the early opposition to the civil rights movement. He argued that in Birmingham, Alabama, when Bull Connor used his police guards to attack uh, poor African Americans in the streets. Welch would say it was a false flag. In fact, uh, he argued uh, incorrectly that communists had provoked and started the tension. Um, but as as the events of the of the 1960s unfold, he begins to emphasize in the form of books, in the form of pamphlets, in the form of hiring writers such as Gary Allen uh, and Alan Stang, um, to write their tracks on race, um, such as uh, It's Very Simple and Communism in the Streets. Uh, And he's really making the case that the civil rights movement was being driven by the communists, which is a ridiculous assertion. So I think you're right to say that it's not his primary concern, although his campaigns to impeach Earl Warren are partly driven by Brown versus Board of Education. Um, and his presence at the 1956 States Rights Party's convention, where he talks about foreign policy, of all things, um, were also in his wheelhouse. They were in his toolbox. So he could, he could pull out these issues when it was necessary. But, um, he, he definitely sees civil rights and, and race not as the the only way the communists were overtaking America, but it's just one other way in which uh, the communists were taking over America. I, I like to think of it as um, uh, as as a table where where race is one one part of it, and there's other there's other there's other pieces of the table that that hold up the hold up the table and hold up his ideology. So you uncovered some new uh, material about his uh, claims that uh, Eisenhower was was a communist and kind of how that uh, developed and led to backlash against the John Birch Society. Um, it, it comes off sounding a, a lot more similar to kind of contemporary, uh, well, he's a rhino <laughs> uh, uh, responses to uh, Republican uh, uh, politicians um, fr- from the right. So I guess how distinctive was this and how, how important was this claim to the Birch Society's rights? Oh, th- th- this is paramount. This is central. It's a, it's, a, it's a big part of why the Birch Society would garner so much attention in the early 1960s. I mean, I, I would argue that it's the, it's the big piece. Um, 
and it all began with a car ride. Uh, he was traveling with some business associates um, to a conservative organization. Um, he began to make the case that Eisenhower was perhaps a communist, and his um, his passengers or his um, or his fellow travelers, if you will, uh, were um, uh, were a, a bit confused, and they wanted him to go further to make the case. Uh, they asked him to put it in writing. He did. It, it became rather an obsession with him, um, and he wrote a letter that eventually turned into a book to politician, um, arguing that Eisenhower uh, was a communist based on several reasons. He said that you know, based on all the available evidence, uh, it's beyond a reasonable doubt that Eisenhower is a communist for these reasons, um, all of which is unfounded, I believe. Um, Eisenhower, as I said, was the man who planned D-Day, um, stopped Hitler, and was the furthest thing from being a communist in many ways that I can think of. Um, but what, one of the main impetuses um, that is going to tear him for at least a brief period from the conservative movement was this tract, um, which argued that Eisenhower was a communist. Bill Buckley would use this, along with other figures, who were afraid that a fledgling conservative movement, uh, that's afraid that the conservative movement is going to be associated with a conspiratorial notion, um, was going to hurt the cause, and specifically hurt the cause in 1964, when the possibility of electing a conservative like Barry Goldwater, in their minds, hopefully, could occur. And I've said before, um, the efforts of Buckley and others um, to excommunicate him um, would make him a pariah, that, that, which would have made him a pariah, didn't work. And his ideas continued into the future and beyond. How central was Welch to the, the uh, mid-century conservative movement? Uh, how uh, successful was uh, William F. Buckley in trying to write Welch out of Ultimately, um, Welch was um, a figure who remained uh, central to the conservative movement. He was absolutely paramount to the, um, to the conservative movement. In fact, uh, there were efforts among uh, William Rusher and especially William F. Buckley to uh, drum him out of the, uh, of the conservative movement, but uh, there were Welch was uh, it was Buckley actually who met with uh, with Goldwater and, and suggested that Goldwater make the case that Welch Welch be uh, removed from his leadership position in the John Birch Society and sort of moved into the editorial room. But these efforts failed. Uh, uh, Welch would not uh, move himself out of the out of the position of founder. Um, and his ideas would remain uh, very central to the conservative movement uh, into the 20th, 20th century and the, uh, the 21st century. I would suggest that the policy outcomes of the Trump administration are even more the ultimate victory um, for the Birch Society and, and the, for the Birch Society and the Republican Party.
as I said, the Birch Society was ahead of the evangelicals. I say this in my book on the abortion issue. I mean, the Republicans only realized it was winning the issue after um, it, it was winning after um, it could win on abortion um, after James Buckley, William F. Buckley's brother, won a Senate seat in New York um, in in 1970. And uh, then Richard Nixon comes to the conclusion that the Republicans can win on the abortion issue, moves the party uh, to the right on abortion, and Richard Nixon becomes a pro-life candidate. So I would, the, the reluctance to embrace gun rights even, um, uh, and back gun control after children are ma- murdered in their classrooms demonstrates the potency of these ideas of the bon- John Birch Society today. But we can't underestimate that having John, that having uh, Donald John Trump in the White House was a major victory for the ideas of Robert Welch. Trump that, that would finish his campaign with a two-minute video that attacked globalists and argued that um, uh, that, that Trump was going to turn back the clock to an earlier time. And I think that's what the John Birch Society was striving to do in a more controversial, more earthy, more grassroots style than William F. Buckley, um, even though he um, he argued that we need to yell stop to history. So uh, there's also been uh, new scholarship on uh, kind of the history of conservative media, um, pointing out, of course, that um, these these figures are, are very old, like uh, Clarence Mannion, uh, like uh, Smoot, um, some of these uh, figures, and, and trying to um, kind of revise the the National Review centrality that conservative media, uh, you know, that there was a long base of, of more conspiratorial and more mass-based media, and of course, the Birch Society was a pretty big part of uh, that that kind of media infrastructure, but isn't usually uh, viewed that well. So, should we view um, the Birch Society as also a precursor to the rise of uh, talk radio and eventually Fox? Oh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I think that's a Perfect dissertation topic. It, it's and it's also a um, it, it's a fascinating question. I really hope somebody someday uh, would take the time to demonstrate that the, that the John Birch Society was um, a virtual veritable media empire. I mean, they had subdivisions of media, whether it was in records, um, Western um, Islands. Uh, press produced a bestseller in the 1970s book about Ted Kennedy called Teddy Bear. Um, there were um, there was an American Opinion magazine which was read in barber shops and bait shops and uh, gasoline stations and American homes uh, throughout the United States. Um, Welch would produce records and tapes rather. Uh, not the most exciting uh, records and tapes because he would drone on in his uh, uh, he would drone on in, in his monotone voice and uh, he wrote a monthly bulletin uh, that went out to society members. Uh, he is a despite the fact that he ha- he was not a great speaker, he was a great organizer of communication um, and he definitely had um, 
he definitely had some problems with speaking. But um, if you take a look at the conspiratorial nature of an Alex Jones, uh, the conspiratorial nature of a Tucker Carlson today, or even Rush Limbaugh, um, one can argue that Welch's methods of communication, which I I really believe he gathered from that campaign, and I and I didn't put that enough in the book. Were, were emulated in the conservative media of contemporary America. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you liked this discussion, I think you'll like some of our previous episodes. Look for Conspiracy Beliefs Are Neither Increasing Nor Exclusive to the Right, Right-Wing Extremism and the Capital Insurrection, How News and Social Media Shape American Voters, how the left and right undermine trust in government, and are Americans becoming tribal with identity politics trumping all. Thanks to Edward Miller for joining me. Please check out A Conspiratorial Life and then listen in next time.